Hello, everyone. Thanks for watching and listening to our latest episode of UCLA Forecast Direct. My name is William Yu. I'm an economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast. Today, we are very honored and delighted to have Mr. Martin Chosenbar to talk about U.S.-China relationship. Martin is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Germany and a Luce Scholar at Peking University. Martin holds a master's degree from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He's also the author of the Cashless Revolution, China's Reinvention of Money, which the Financial Times named one of the best economics books of 2022. Martin is an expert on China, technology, and capital markets. So Martin, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me. Okay, great. So let's go to the cut to the chest. So uh, let's begin with this broad question. So two weeks ago, right before the APEC uh, meeting, President Biden and she had a meeting in San Francisco. So what do you think about this meeting? Do you think it's a change? Um, do you think this meeting signal a change of the US-China relationship? You know, uh, what are your major takeaway from this meeting? Sure. So I, I think the change was already signaled um, quite a few months before this meeting. Uh, and the fact that it happened at all is a sign that, uh, that there's some improvement in U.S.-China relations. Uh, the U.S. prioritized, as many of you know, sending cabinet-level officials to China uh, who engage in more substantive discussions on their areas of expertise. And then overall, uh, the two heads of state decided to meet together. And I think both want, for various reasons, to set a kind of floor on the uh, on the relationship and not let things spiral out of control. Uh, and I think both uh, both sides got something they wanted out of the meeting. Maybe the US got more than China uh, because some of its specifics asks around fentanyl, for example, and military to military communications were, uh, were things that were positive breakthroughs in that. Uh, and the U.S. doesn't necessarily have much in the way of concessions. Uh, I, I couldn't think of a single concession it would have necessarily given China in uh, in this meeting. Uh, but there's a sense that uh, that things need to be communicated all the way to the head of state level in China for them to to you know to guarantee that it actually reaches the ultimate decision maker, which increasingly is is a single uh, individual in China. Uh, so it's it's very positive, and in a sense, the having a positive outcome and uh, this kind of summit with a good set of deliverables keeps the countries working together on areas where they can work together and creates a positive environment for uh, for for some of the more working level collaboration to continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well. Yeah, I fully agree with you. Uh, so. What do you think? Do you think China is happy, is satisfied with this meeting and the result? I think that China, you know, I was when I was just in China, we discussed uh, quite a bit with various uh, Chinese individuals with varying connections to the leadership. 
And uh, one of the things they wanted to do is try and push a redefinition of the relationship between the U.S. and China as not just being defined by competition. Um, as you know, the U.S. policy towards China is essentially this invest, align, compete, uh, invest at home, align and build co coalitions with countries around the world to have a more unified policy. And then uh, all the, that is to compete more effectively with China. The U.S. sees that as completely compatible with collaboration on a wide variety of issues. But China wants to create a more rhetorical focus around mutual respect and win-win cooperation and model of, you know, that kind of thing. And the U.S. really didn't budge at all um, on, on that. Uh, so in a sense, China, China might not have gotten a, exactly what it might have hoped for. But I, I don't really think that uh, that they went into this likely expecting that there was going to be some breakthrough on some of their asks. I think that they, they didn't necessarily expect that the U.S. was going to reduce national security export controls or sanctions or or anything. It was more of a way to just really maintain high level communication between the two. So the fact that uh, that it was respectful and there weren't really a bunch of negative headlines uh, about it. It didn't, uh, negotiations to make the summit work didn't uh, didn't break down. I think all that is very positive and, and significant from the Chinese perspective and gives hopefully, to, from, from their perspective, gives businesses hopefully more uh, more sense that uh, that the relationship is a bit more stable and they don't necessarily need to be so afraid of things spiraling out of control. Although any business uh, doing doing business between the U.S. and China is obviously going to have to be very careful about uh, potential future trajectory, especially if uh, if a different president uh, takes office uh, in the United States uh, in not too long. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So you mentioned about this national security. So I would like to ask this uh, following question. Um, so in July. You wrote a policy brief on the U.S. Uh, Expo ban on advanced semiconductor components and equipment to China, which took place in October 2022. I, I think you uh, there was an excellent uh, piece report. You know, very detailed, clear uh, explanation of the global supply chain on semiconductor. I enjoy a lot. So, could you share with us? Uh, uh, what 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 do you think are the goals of this band, and how you know because it was one year ago uh, implemented, and how how far do you think it achieved its goals? What's the impact uh, on U.S. and other uh, global supply chain uh, uh, participants uh, for this band? Yeah. yeah, it's a big question. Uh, so. Uh, what I th I'll just give you at first an overview of what the U.S. did mm -hmm. uh, last October. It restricted um, a few, uh, only about a handful of different types of uh, extremely advanced chips, generally GPUs, which are used to train AI algorithms and are used in things like supercomputers. And those have the strictest controls including using extraterritorial means to say that these chips, almost all of which are made with some U.S. technology somewhere in the supply chain, cannot be shipped to China, even if they're made in a fabrication facility in, say, Taiwan or, uh, or Korea. And then another side of it is designed to, to stop China from being able to develop its own 
chip manufacturing industry for advanced chips, which would effectively, you know, make it uh, impossible for the U.S. to, in the future, put controls on China's uh, on semiconductors to China because, you know, they could just make their own instead of buying them from from someone that uh, the U.S. could have uh, have leverage over. And the goal here is fundamentally um, driven by a few factors. One of them is just the understanding of importance of AI. And uh, in an era in, in which you can't really control open source algorithms or data, uh, one of the things the US government could control is one of the inputs to developing advanced AI systems, which is the advanced chips that are needed, the GPUs which are needed to train those algorithms. So I think they they bet that restricting that would help maintain a lead in potentially militarily relevant AI systems. And the bet that they made is that the negative commercial impact on U.S. firms of being unable to sell those kind of chips to China would be outweighed by the national security benefit of China not having access to that um, to that technology. And then just more broadly, the sense that uh, that advanced semiconductors are going to be important to military competition. And if you're thinking about you know, potential future scenarios uh, across the strait um, between the U.S., but, well, between um, the mainland and Taiwan, then, uh, you know, people might believe that that uh, a lead in semiconductors could have an impact on, on how some sort of future scenario would, would play out. If we fast forward to a year later, uh, the U.S. government had clearly believed that it had not really achieved all of its goals uh, it, to at least uh, a large extent, uh, including by the from the fact that Huawei has been able to get access to uh, fabrication facilities to make uh, advanced chips that, uh, according to export controls, probably should not legally be allowed to uh, to be sent to Huawei, uh, and that's an indication that these that these have been circumvented. One of the other things they did was. Um, increase the uh, tightness of what is able to be sent to China. So I said it was only a handful of chips and last October 7th, this October 17th, the US tightened it and included a lot more uh, chips, which are included in things like data centers and stuff. And there's a lot of concern in China that the cloud computing industry, for example, will be uh, heavily negatively impacted by this. And they also expanded it to other countries. The idea being that uh, if a Chinese firm can just uh, set up a subsidiary in the UAE, for for example, and order a bunch of these chips and then port them over to China, you don't have a very effective control if it only goes to, to China. So it's an incredibly complex set of rules. Each uh, October 17th and last October 7th uh, add up to many, many hundreds of pages in one of the world's most complicated uh, supply chains. But the overall overall message is that the U.S. is really trying to find ways to control dual use technologies uh, of the future with a lot of unclear uh, commercial and uh, and national security implications. And uh, the jury is still out on uh, on really how effective those are likely to be and what the outcomes will be. We don't really know what that impact of AI is going to be on um, on weaponry, for example. Uh, that's something we'll have to see play out. But the U.S. doesn't want to take the risk that these things proliferate first. So, great. So, Martin, do you think uh, more this kind of uh, restriction will be coming in the future? Uh, the U.S. has said that they're going to update these restrictions every year. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get tighter every year in every way. Uh, in some ways, you know, they could be loosened if the idea is that, you know, this control is not effective or it's outdated, let's say that, you know, uh, usually the trend in export controls is that you control something that's really high end that you can actually restrict. And then as time goes on, that high end thing becomes pretty low end. You know, uh, Kevin Wolf, uh, who led export controls under Obama, says the iPhone in your pocket would have been controlled as a supercomputer uh, not that long ago and would have been subject to extreme export restrictions. But now it's kind of regular consumer uh, consumer technology. So that's something to watch is that they'll be adjusted in that way. Now, the U.S. has a lot of restrictions in the works. One of them is on outbound investment into China, uh, especially kind of PE and uh, venture capital investment. That's going to take quite a while to finalize. And then we could see some restrictions on access to cloud services because if China can't access these chips in terms of buying them, then the U.S. might not want them to be able to rent uh, access to them either through cloud computing services located outside of China. And that's mm-hmm. a real, another really complicated undertaking that's that's not particularly easy. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, so in your piece, you mentioned about how the Korean uh semiconductor uh, firms are impacted by this band. Um, and there are two questions I would like to ask you uh, as a follow-up. You, you mentioned that uh, Korean, uh, I think it's Samsung, uh, had a memory chips uh, in Xi'an. Um, and then I, I think, I, I did not know the number. You know, I, I do know they had a huge uh, uh, footprint in China. Uh, which is accounts about forty percent of their production um, amount, and they they just I think I, I don't know is it a total investment or just a recent uh, upgrade twenty five billion dollars you know Korean investment in Xi'an, and then right now they got caught of guard with this band. So just simple question: Why 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 did Korean company invest this huge amount of money in China? Is it Chinese government? Do we know they offer some kind of benefit subsidy? Or they say, if you want to sell chip in China, you have to invest in China. Do you know what's going on? I I was surprised to see this huge number. You know, they they choose to invest in China. They, They don't want to invest in Korea or other uh, maybe safer uh, uh, place. Yeah. So uh, memory, as you know from reading my piece, is this really cutthroat business uh, focused on margins. And um, and so anytime you can be cost competitive, that's the most important, uh, one of the most important. The other is access to advanced technology, which is now no longer assured for operations in China. You know, I haven't looked in in detail into the reasons the decision was made to produce in China. But uh, China has been investing a lot in trying to develop clusters of, uh, of semiconductor production. So there would have been a large number of incentives uh, for them to do so uh, that in terms of carrots, let's say, instead of sticks, uh, it wouldn't necessarily, you know, if you look at China's trade data, you see that semiconductors are one of its largest imports. So it still uh, imports a huge number of the of the semiconductors that go into devices, many of which will be used in China, many of which will be exported to the rest of the world. Um, and in terms of these facilities, uh, 
um, you know, if if you put this into broader context, the, the way it's been most reported on is with Apple. When Apple decided to produce in China, the local government even went to the to the extent of helping them hire workers so they didn't have to go and find workers on their own and created this special kind of free trade zone in the middle of China so they wouldn't have to deal with customs formalities to assemble iPhones that would be exported to the rest of the world. So you see that as a general pattern, uh, not necessarily just the central government, but oftentimes the local governments will be involved in providing a lot of assistance to, uh, to, to firms that are bringing what's perceived as advanced, useful technology into China. Not necessarily to take that in any sort of nefarious way, but because they want to develop their, their region. Uh, and I would also note that uh, as, as we've seen in the U.S. with the CHIPS Act, there's general and with some reports on the semiconductor industry by BCG, um, that that subsidies to produce semiconductor manufacturing uh, fabrication facilities are rampant all around the world. Uh, and and so getting subsidies from China to do so is not uh, not out of the the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in in the report, you also mentioned something I found it very interesting that uh, you mentioned that uh, actually uh, this ban on semiconductor uh, might benefit Korean company because the potential future competition from China will be uh, curtailed by this ban. So could you elaborate a little bit more? Sure. So the um, the main potential threat was a company called YMTC, uh, which looked poised to be sending, uh, becoming a memory supplier to Apple, and grew quite rapidly from uh, from a small company to one that could potentially be really competitive near the cutting edge of uh, what's called NAND, uh, which is uh, the memory like flash memory that's used on you know, phones and other kinds of devices. And uh, and effectively what these controls have done is make it really, really difficult for those firms to get the software and equipment that they need to be able to produce the chips that they want. And therefore uh, at, coming, especially at a time when the memory market was in a glut, there was a benefit to the Korean firms from not having to face this, you know, potential very heavily subsidized competition uh, in comparison to the currently relatively cozy memory market where there are only a few players that are able to play at the at the top levels uh, required to get to the cutting edge. So um, so Martin, uh, in our conversation, you mentioned about this AI. And I heard that uh, uh, President Biden and President Xi uh, talk about this AI competition in the summit. Uh, uh, but I... I, I didn't see the details. So do you have any kind of insight? What, what do they talk about, you know, about this competition? You know, because I, I feel like, uh, um, you know, this big, you know, two countries were not really ill, you know, in terms of uh, controlling this AI technology. Um, yeah, so what do you think? Yeah, I, the details are not... Uh, terribly detailed uh, that have been released so far. My sense is it's around uh, cooperating on AI safety kind of issues and mm-hmm. uh, some discussion about limits that should be put on autonomous 
you know, AI weapon systems. You're trying to avoid the the Terminator scenario, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. And uh, and I think that's something that's positive. Um, it, this fits into a pattern of, um, you know, including on export controls where the U.S. and China have agreed to have these working groups where they discuss. I think it's just useful to have a mechanism to get the people who are thinking about AI safety in the U.S. and those who are thinking about it in China together to have a discussion, uh, whether something concrete will come out of it in terms of, you know, some agreement is, uh, you know, not necessarily something I'd be holding my breath for, but it's positive that uh, that there's there will be a discussion of views between uh, two, two of the leading countries in AI development. Mm-hmm. Very well. Okay, so um, in October, you wrote a piece about China's new rule on data regulation, which might signal a more pro-business environment in China. So, um, so we know that uh, our Commerce Secretary, Romando, was in China in early September, and she mentioned something um, uh, coming from the business leaders uh, uh, reflection that China is uninvestable. So, uh, so do you see any kind of a reaction change, you know, uh, in terms of a investment environment in China based on what you wrote about this specific policy? And could you talk about this uh, specific data uh, regulation policy change? Yes. So one of the, there are a large variety of regulatory changes in China, which have led to uh, less confidence in investing in China from the business community. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ranges for everything from, you know, all of a sudden shutting down the whole online tutoring business, which was a multi-billion business, to the crackdown on uh, internet platform companies, including antitrust scrutiny, and a ton of data security and data protection regulation. Many of these rules, by the way, um, at least... Uh, respond to a real societal problem. And whether whether or not you think that the response is proportional, uh, I think doing something about it is useful. Uh, they probably did too much uh, too far at, uh, at once in a kind of campaign style, uh, as we call it, regulation, uh, regulation where, where it's just a flood of rules. And that makes it really difficult for a business to understand what the environment is, what's going to be permitted and all that. Uh, one of the elements of that uh, that push is around data security, and one of the most important subsets of that is cross-border data transfers. If you are a business, international business that's doing business in China, or even a Chinese business that has subsidiaries and activities abro- abroad, you need to be uh, bringing data in and out of China. Not necessarily all the different types of data you use, but you need to have different pieces of your company able to talk to each other, and you need to be sure that doing that is legal. Uh, that's, you know, includes sharing information, you know, think about a payment where uh, information about that payment is going to be on both sides of, uh, of that transaction, say between the U.S. and, and, uh, and, and China. And uh, we got to a point earlier this year where uh, if they applied the regulations strictly as they were written, then essentially nobody would be allowed to, to uh, exchange any data cross-border. Uh, in very wide variety, wide, you know, subjective areas. Uh, and that would effectively make, you know, make companies have to completely wall off their Chinese subsidiaries, would make it very difficult for them to manage it. And it would also be a real headache for Chinese firms. 
And so in a sense, this became one of the main symbols for the security side running amok and uh, coming at a massive um, cost to, to doing business in China and a deterioration of the business environment. And they effectively threw in the towel or at least put things, put things off until later and, uh, and proposed to significantly alter those regulations in a way that was beneficial to, to business. And so if you look at something like that, I think it matters a lot more than you know, the endless statements that you see from the state council and other Chinese government bodies about how they're gonna improve access to finance or they're gonna improve these other things. Um, and improve the business environment. There have been promises on this front for many, many years, but what businesses are really looking for is a sign that actual policy making, when there's, as Chinese would say, a li chongtu, uh, when there's a, uh, a conflict between security and, uh, and, and or a, at least an extreme view of security and development, that, uh, that development and openness will, can, can actually win out at times, and that the concerns of the business community when there is a real problem in the regulations actually leads to a real change. So you're, they're looking for substance. And uh, so far, uh, it seems that, you know, there hasn't really been that much yet in the way of real real substance that would make me think that the, uh, the, the policy direction that they took uh, in that policy is going to be a new trend, but it's something to watch for. I wouldn't rule it out but I wouldn't think it's going to go too far. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, for example, uh, in terms of data flow, let's just say that Tesla, you know, autonomous car, uh, people driving Tesla in China, within China, uh, would those uh, image data be able to flow back to the Tesla headquarters in the United States or not under this new rule or not? Do you know? I don't know to that level of specificity. Uh, the current, the rules that I wrote about are still, to my knowledge, draft rules uh, and would need to be finalized. Uh, but I would think that that kind of data would be considered very sensitive mm -hmm. and probably still would not be able to be, you know, they might be able to use that within China to help refine some algorithm, but like raw images taken along Chinese uh, streets with roots of who's driving where, that kind of thing is probably not likely to get permission to be able to be uh, transferred cross-border. What we're mainly talking about here are things like HR data, knowing who works for you, uh, knowing who your customers are, uh, financial data, uh, that kind of uh, that kind of thing. And there's uh, but but personal data is uh, is is much more, and including personal data on customers is something that that's more sensitive. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't bet on that. Okay, so I wonder, uh, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, you know, right now there are a lot of uh, electric EV cars are made in China, shipped to Europe. Um, so I wonder, um, will those kind of uh, data privacy rule applied uh, as well? Um, so yeah, do you know? I don't know, but I my sense would be that uh, EU data privacy rules would apply um, but mainly the criticism that they've been aiming is at United States companies that are bringing uh, data from European citizens into the United States rather than Chinese. But I think that could change as EVs and especially EVs with all these cameras and, and data accumulation become, uh, become a much larger part 
of the of the European auto market. In general, Chinese authorities are much more concerned about data on Chinese people flowing abroad than they are about data on foreigners coming into China. So I don't think the Cyberspace Administration would particularly care about a, a data flow, about scrutinizing a data flow moving in that direction. That's probably something they would encourage because it would help it refine their you know, self-driving algorithms and would perceivably benefit China without any negative impact on Chinese um, citizens' privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well. Okay, so uh, I would like to kind of ask this uh, final question, um, which could be also brought. So uh, in September, in September, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, um, I think in John Hawkins uh, University said that the post-Cold War order has come to the end. Uh, I, I don't know uh, if you heard of that. Uh, so what do you think about that statement? And given what we had seen over the past uh, uh, you know, few months, you know, this kind of development, this uh, uh, leader meeting, um, and this kind of a productive uh, kind of a, uh, adjustment, uh, the escalation. So, I'm a little bit confused, you know, what kind of a uh, role US-China relationship uh, will be playing out in the future? Do you think it's more of, uh, as you say, competitors or more of uh, rivals? You know, because uh, uh, if based on Clinton, uh, Blinken, Blinken's uh, uh, kind of a statement, um, it seems he is implying this new Cold War has begun. So, 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 what do you think? Hmm. I I actually would bring in uh, the the way that the European Union has officially described this, which is China as a partner, a competitor, and a systemic rival. You know, a rival of systems. Uh, I definitely see uh, see at that level there are useful parallels between the Cold War and um, and the uh, the current situation, but I think it's really easy to to read too much into those parallels. Uh, China is so much more integrated to the world economy than the Soviet Union ever was. It's more of just an individual country. It doesn't have the huge, you know, the large amount of uh, country close allies that the Soviet Union had uh, during that period. So it's difficult to say. And at the same time, a lot of the Bretton Woods institutions uh, and other elements of the order continue to exist, but some of them are being hollowed out, including by actions the U.S. is taking uh, to, for example, in the WTO. Uh, so I, I think where, where we're at now is that U.S.-China rivalry has led to um, a lot of frustration with the current order and not really much of a sense of what could replace it. Uh, you know, there's a talk of, um, you could imagine a scenario where a kind of global leadership falters and we get a lot more chaos um, because we don't really see a new round of institution building. China's building some institutions uh, like the AIIB, uh, and and others, but they don't really replace the existing World Bank, for example. So, so I think we're kind of 
the rules-based international order has always uh, been maybe to some extent, uh, you know, to a great extent real, but in some extent as aspirational because the U.S. has sometimes carved out exceptions, you know, and like sugar subsidies, for example, um, and um, and and doesn't always follow the rules. And China doesn't always want to follow the rules, uh, the rules either. And I think the stress of adding China to some of these institutions with its very different system of governance um, is uh, has has led to a lot of frustration, but but much more frustration than there than there has been, you know, actual plans of what to do about it that can productively lead the two countries to work uh, to be able to live with each other. In, uh, in an international system that's made up to a great extent of countries that are not the US or China. And uh, you know what, what I the reason I found it so interesting to write about those South Korean companies is you really see them in a tough geopolitical bind where it's not really clear from either side uh, what, uh, what they can face and they don't, you know, their influence is limited because they're, uh, they're a third country. They're not in the biggest. And one of the main advantages, I think, of the, you know, the ideals of the rules-based order was to try and simplify things uh, and create some you know, sustainability and stability for, for those countries based on at least somewhat predictable rules. So I hope that much of that can still be maintained. And my, my hope is also, and potentially even the base case, could be that you know we have a few areas which of trade and and economic engagement which are you know acknowledged as really relevant to national security, and in those areas we see uh, less interdependence between the U.S. and China, and also you know between other countries because that's perceived as too risky. Uh, but then that uh, hopefully the rest of the you know the vast majority of the economy can continue to be one of interdependence and the main thing the policymakers would be watching out for is just making sure it's not too lopsided that one side's not getting too much influence over the other and uh, you know hopefully that could be some sort of stable thing as long as relationship between the us and china doesn't go off the rails and as long as we can get some sort of predictability about the security implications of some of these new technologies and that help us put guardrails around what is actually a real security issue that we want to control and what is something that uh, you know we should be wanting to be as efficient economically as uh, as possible to give low prices and best innovation to to consumers? But that's my bias as an economist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think excellent points. Uh, very well. So, uh, Martin, uh, do you have anything to add uh, in terms of a uh, U.S.-China relation? No, I think you asked some really really thoughtful questions and. Uh, Push me to think a lot too. Very useful. Okay. So thank you so much again uh, for your time today and sharing your views. So hope to see you again. Yep. Thank you. Bye.